Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. And if you would, uh, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the book of Romans in the New Testament and chapter number 11. And I want to encourage you to bring your own copy of the Word of God uh, to church each week. It can be a printed copy or it can be an electronic copy. I know I really enjoy my ESV app on my, my phone. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to have one to look at, there's one. You could even take it home if you want. There's a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. You could take that Bible and turn it in, in, in the back part to page 126 and you'd find yourself at Romans chapter 11. This morning, we're going to be concluding our series that we've entitled Family Tree, which covers Romans chapter 9 through 11. And I have given a title to this morning's message, and that title is, Israel Has a Future and We Do Too. Now, chapter 11 of Romans is a strategic chapter in the New Testament because it sheds light on a significant theological issue. So what I want us all to do is to grab our theological thinking caps and just put them in place this morning. Would you do that with me? Let's all grab those and put those on. Before we actually get to Romans chapter 11, though, I want to give a little bit of background there are some followers of Jesus, people who know him personally. Many of them are my friends, and many of them I deeply respect, I highly respect, who would say this. They would say this, although Israel had been God's tool to reach the world, they would say due to Israel's disobedience and rejection of the Messiah, I mean, after all, they put him on a cross, they would say, because of those things, Israel has forfeited the promises of the Old, Testa Old Testament covenants. Uh, one of those promises, for example, was a promise of geographical land to Israel. And by the way, they never fully occupied what God promised to them. Uh, many of them would say that Jesus is not ever going to reign in an earthly kingdom Many of them would say even that the events that you find in Matthew chapter 24 and in the book of the Revelation chapter 6 and following, they would say those are not future predictions, which I believe they are, but they would say, no, those are things that have already occurred. They occurred in New Testament times. Many of them would say that there is no promised future for Israel that there is no spiritual significance at all to the fact that there is a nation called Israel today in our time. They would say that's not really significant. Many of them, again, these are friends of mine, would say that the church inherited the promises to Israel. They would say that in a sense, the church permanently replaced Israel. Now, in order for them to get there, many of those detailed promises given to Israel have to be spiritualized in some way. However, even my friends who take these views would admit that if you take the promises to Israel at face value, you end up with a conclusion, and that is Israel has a future. 
So I, I just want to present what I think is a better way to understand Scripture. And that is to view the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God said, I'm going to promise you a land, a kingdom, and a throne as an unconditional covenant. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago know that Pastor Mark took us back to Genesis 15 where God verifies his covenant with Abraham. In fact, in that chapter, verse 18, he says to Abraham, to your descendants I have given this land. And remember how normally when they were going to verify a covenant, they would cut the animals. Mark talked about this and they would cut them in half and they would line them up. And the way the two covenant partners would verify the covenant together is they would walk together down through there. I'm committing to this covenant. But in Genesis 15, what does God do? Puts Adam into a trance and he himself walks down through the middle because he's saying, I'm making these promises and I am going to deliver on these promises. God promised a literal piece of real estate to Israel, and they've never occupied it in its fullness. So I just want to talk about what I think, I just think is a better way to view things. And that better way is to say that Israel will fulfill its promised destiny. That Israel will again be center stage in God's outworking of his plan. I think it's better to understand that an earthly kingdom will exist with Israel with Messiah ruling on it, the throne. And that Israel will have a prominent place in the closing drama of history. I just think that's a better way to view things. And, and, and the bottom line is this, Israel has a future. Now, we could spend actually several days talking about this, but I want to just spend this morning talking about this. And there's four reasons why I say that Israel has a future. Here they are. Number one, the Old Testament repeatedly assured it. Number two, the apostles clearly anticipated it. Number three, Jesus never denied it. And number four, Paul directly taught it, which really is going to bring us in a few moments to Romans chapter 11. Now, I, I want to just emphasize as we begin to talk about this, some of you may be drifting on me a little bit. All of this has great significance for you and me. So I just want you to hang in there for a little while. We'll get there in a few minutes. So Israel has a future. That's the first part of the title of our message today. And the first reason we say that is the Old Testament repeatedly assured it. Now, part of that assurance was the very nature of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. But part of that assurance are multiple statements made by God where he gives assurances to them that Israel has a future. I'm just going to give you a couple of them. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 21. Yahweh God says to the nation, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. What does he mean by all that? I've given you promises. I'm not going to forget them, Israel. I Isaiah chapter 45, verse 17 he says to them, you will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. This was a time in which the northern kingdom of Israel was going to be soon overrun by the Assyrians. And he's saying, you're not going to be put to shame and humiliated to all eternity. I won't forget my promises at all. And as Mark has shared and, and Pastor John shared last week, there is a temporary setting aside of Israel. However, 
Israel has a future. Not only did the Old Testament repeatedly assure that, but number two, the apostles clearly anticipated it. You know, it's funny when we talk about the disciples, frequently when we think about them, we just think about them as the bumbling band that we find in the Gospels. And they were pretty thick-headed. They were pretty human there. In fact, one time in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, Jesus had been teaching them things about the Word of God and the kingdom of God. And it says there in chapter 18, verse 34, the disciples understood none of these things. They could be very slow, very much like we can be. And we often think of them in that box, but we need to remember that they were transformed after the resurrection. They were very, very different after the resurrection. Have you ever asked the question why? Well, part of it obviously was the event that Jesus rose again from the dead, but I think there's more factors involved than that. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter number 24. Luke chapter 24. This is the story of a couple of the disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And in verse 27 of chapter 24, I want you to see what's happening. Jesus is walking with them, the resurrected Jesus. And it says, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This wasn't just a two-minute little conversation. This was an extensive review in fact, down in verse 32, as these two disciples reflected on it, they said, were not our hearts burning within us when he was explaining the scriptures to us? And, and what was really going on with those two people? Why, why, were not our hearts burning? I mean, you know, did they have, you know, a little bit of heartburn? Uh, they had some spicy stuff at the fire before the walk. You know, so they're saying, no, we we're, were having a little heartburn while he was teaching us. We were having that heartburn problem. Now, now, that's not the idea. You know, today we might say something like this. Were not our hearts glowing when he was explaining the scriptures to us? So he meets with two of them. And then down in verse 44 of the same chapter, he's meeting with a group of the disciples. And he says to them this, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Things are changing. Not only was Jesus resurrected from the dead, but he's systematically teaching the disciples. Now with that in mind, let's go a little bit to the right in our Bible to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Church is about to be born in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 3 of Acts 1. Jesus had been presenting himself alive. And notice it says in verse 3, he was appearing to them over a period of 40 days. What was he doing during that 40-day period? Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. These disciples were enrolled in the best seminary in the history of the universe. The risen Savior 
who as God was also a co-author of the scriptures, was giving them a detailed crash course on the divine plans. Not only what had happened in the past that led up to everything, but what was going to be going on in the future. He was giving to them an advanced degree on how the kingdom was going to unfold, and part of that teaching involved a place for Israel in the future. And if you don't think this impacted them. I mean, all you need to do is go into the next chapter and, and track Peter in his sermon. What's he doing? He's quoting from the prophets. He's quoting from the historical books. He's quoting from multiple Psalms. Where did he get all that stuff? In seminary with Jesus being the teacher. Now, let your eyes go down in chapter 1 of Acts to verse 6. It says, they were together and they were asking him this question. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And notice his response to them in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. His answer to their question, is this the time for the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? He says, the time is not now. Israel has a future. The Old Testament repeatedly assured it. The apostles clearly anticipated it. And thirdly, Jesus never denied it. I mean, this was a welcome opportunity for him to say, if they were wrong in even asking this question that there was a future for Israel. You know, he could have just said, boys, boys, boys. Don't you know by now, after all of this teaching I have done you, don't you know that Israel has forfeited all of her promises because of her rejection of me? Don't you know there's never going to be an earthly kingdom? Don't you know, guys, that the church has inherited the promises to Israel? Don't you know that the church has permanently, which is about to be born, replaced Israel? He doesn't say any of those things at all. His reply, verse 7, that's a time issue. That's the Father's business. You see, Israel has a future. The Old Testament repeatedly assured it. The apostles clearly anticipated it. Jesus never denied it. And number four, Paul directly taught it. And that brings us back to Romans chapter 11. Now, as we're going back to Romans 11... Again, we might say, what does this really have to do with us? I'm, I'm not a Jew. Uh, I'm certainly not living in the nation of Israel. What does this have to do with me today? Well, remember that chapters 9, 10, and 11 grow out of some very significant promises that are given to the believer at the end of Romans 8. Promises like, nothing can ever separate you as a follower of Jesus from the love of Christ. Nothing in the present, nothing in the future. Whom I have justified and declared righteous, I have also glorified. Those are tremendous promises. And Paul, as, as Mark shared with us, is anticipating there are some people who are going to say when they look at those great promises, well, wait a second now, didn't God make promises to Israel? And because of their unbelief, they lost those promises? What if that happens to me? What if I fall into some disobedience? What if I have some days of unbelief? Am I going to lose all those promises at the end of Romans 8? 
So he's helping us to understand that his promises are his promises. Let me give you an overall outline of chapter 11 as I see it. In chapter 11, we have Israel's rejection is not total, verses 1 to 10. That's what Pastor Mark covered a couple of weeks ago. Talks about how there was a remnant from Israel in the past history, Old Testament, Elijah, and there was a remnant currently, which would be Paul himself. He was an Israelite. He was of the nation of Israel. Then secondly, Israel's rejection is not futile in verses 11 to 24. This is what Pastor John took us through last week. That even though you have this mess of Israel rejecting the Messiah, the Gentiles, that's you, that's me, get to benefit. And God says, even though Israel rejected me, I'm going to take up the church as my tool to touch the world and to make a difference. And then in the chapter, we see Israel's rejection is not final in verses 25 to 32. In other words, their restoration is assured. So let's look at this. Verse 25. He says to them, I do not want you, brethren, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, when he mentions Israel here in verse 25, we need to remember what he's referring to. In chapter 9, 10, and 11, 10 times it mentions Israel, and nine of those are a clear reference to ethnic Israel, to the nation of Israel. Three times in chapter 11 he mentions Israel, and every time it's referring to ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel. And he says, I want you to understand that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, and here comes the key word, what is it? Until. In other words, this is a time thing. Paul's saying we are now in the era of the rejection of the Jewish nation. But it is a temporary shelving by God. His plan is to again work through the nation. I want you to understand there's a partial hardening that has happened to ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, that's a little bit of a cryptic statement. The Net Bible translates it this way, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. The New Living Translation translates it, until the complete number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And most interpreters seem to understand it this way. This is referring to the time when the last member of the church comes to faith. And God knows who that person is and when that will be. But when that last person comes to faith, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the complete number comes to Christ, then God is going to make a shift back in his relationship with Israel. Notice verse 26 goes on to say, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob? That's the nation of Israel. This is my covenant with them, God says, when I take away their sins. Now, this idea of the time frame when all Israel will be saved is connected to when the deliverer will come from Zion. 
Who is the deliverer who's going to come from Zion? Who's that referring to? That's referring to Jesus in his second coming. Now, we, we need to jump back into the Old Testament. I want to jump back into the Old Testament to the book of Zechariah. It's the next to the last book of the Old Testament. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, and there's many of these passages in the Old Testament, but it's talking about this era when Christ returns in his second coming. And I want you to notice what it says in Zechariah 12 and verse 9. This is fascinating stuff. You want to lean into this. God says, in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. By the way, that's never happened in history. When multiple nations came against Jerusalem and God destroyed them all. That's never happened because this is a future event. He's picturing a time in the future when nations, multiple nations, will be attacking Israel. Now let your eyes go over to chapter 13 and verse 8. It will come about in all the land. What land is he talking about? He's talking about the land of Israel. That two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. It's saying at this time, what's going to happen is that as these nations come against Israel, two-thirds of the population of the nation of Israel will perish. But one-third is going to survive. Go back to chapter 12, verse 9 again. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. What's God going to do? I will pour out on whom? The house of David, that's the nation of Israel, that's ethnic Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You see, there's two-thirds of the nation has been wiped out. There's a third left, and Jesus is going to show up. And their eyes are going to be opened and they're going to be in horror over their rejection of the Messiah. Notice verse 9 back in chapter 13. I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And what are they going to do, this third of the nation that's left? They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Look at the first verse of chapter 13. In that day, what's going to happen? A fountain will be opened for, for whom? The whole world? For the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. In Jeremiah 31, 37, the Lord says this. If, if the heavens can be measured, and they can't, but if the heavens can be measured, then I will also cast off all offspring of Israel. In other words, Israel has a future. Now let's go back to, to Romans 11. Let's go back to Romans 11. 
Look at verse 28. It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, who is the they here? It's the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. I mean, they're, they're expressing hostility towards the gospel of Christ. I mean, they executed Jesus. They have killed Stephen. They are hassling uh, Peter and John and throwing them into prison. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the nation of Israel, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint, listen to this, of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They're still beloved because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises that God gave to them. Look at verse 29. It says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What does that mean? Listen, this is so exciting. This is so exciting. God can't renounce. God can't rescind. God can't renege on his promises. He cannot do that. In fact, in the original language, in the Greek here, the word irrevocable is an emphatic position. You can do that in Greek. Basically, the verse would read like this. Irrevocable are the gifts and the calling of God. It just can't happen. He can't renounce, rescind, renege on his promises. And, and, and just like us, this is important to understand, Israel was never chosen because of their goodness. Mark has taken us through that in Romans over and over again. We're not a follower of Jesus because we were so good. And just like us, God won't abandon Israel because of their bad choices. I'm glad he doesn't abandon me when I make a bad choice. How did this whole chapter begin? Paul asked a question. He says this, God has not rejected his people, has he? And the idea is God has not permanently rejected his people, has he? And the answer in English is, may it never be. In the original language, it's the term meganoita. It means no way, no how. God has not rejected his people, has he? No way, no how. I lived two stretches in Jersey. In Jersey, they would put it this way. Has God rejected his people? Forget about it. Forget about it. No way, no how has he done that. They are still a people of promise, and they're headed for a future in the kingdom of God. I don't know. I, I don't understand why people would look in our day at ethnic Israel still being present in our day and not be utterly amazed at that. It is, it is an amazing thing. You remember when Israel became a nation, when they were going into the promised land, there were other people groups that existed in that time. We still have the people of Israel in our day. We don't have those other people. There are no Amorites. There are no Hittites. There are no Jebusites. There are no Girgashites to be found. Only Israelites, the people of Israel, they still exist after all of these centuries. And it isn't amazing you have the nation of Israel the size of New Jersey 
surrounded by six Muslim Arab countries who want to wipe them off the face of the planet, and they're still there. It's amazing. You know that the Bible pictures Israel at the center of the world stage at the end of history? You can look at a lot of passages. I'll just give you a few of them if you want to look at them. Daniel chapter 9 is one of those. Zechariah 12, 13 and 14 is one of those. Revelation chapter 6 to 18. All of those passages have Israel at the center of the world stage at the end of history. You know, Frederick the Great uh, was the ruler of Prussia, which is part of Germany and Poland today, in the 1700s. And Frederick the Great was greatly influenced by a guy by the name of Voltaire. Some of you will recognize that. Uh, Voltaire was the greater, greatest attacker of the Bible and Scripture in all of his generation. And Frederick had been greatly influenced by Voltaire. And one particular day, Frederick asked his court chaplain to present to him proof of the reliability of the Bible. Show me how the Bible is reliable, and I want you to be brief. I always love it when people tell you that. Prove a case, but make it really short. And the court chaplain says, I can do that in one word. The Jew or Israel. See, even in the 1700s, they understood the incredible, amazing miracle it was that the Jews still existed and that was because the Bible said that they would. And in fact, it, it may possibly be the most amazing fact of history that this small nation that has been assaulted for centuries is still here today with an ethnic distinct people. And, and, and think about reestablishing, mean, think about being scattered throughout the world, maintaining your ethnicity and reestablishing yourself as a nation 19 centuries later. That's just some sort of accident. Now, granted, they are currently a secular nation, but Israel has a future. Now, I want to very quickly survey verses 30 to 32. It says, just as you were once disobedient to God, he's talking to the, the Gentiles but now have been shown mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience. So these, Israel, also now have been disobedient, but because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy one day. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. In other words, as God has shown mercy to us as Gentiles, so God is going to show mercy to future Israel. And all of this, all of this, men and women, please understand makes a difference for you and me. What does it mean? It means we can count on his promises to us. He can't renounce them. He can't rescind them. He can't renege on them. They are irrevocable because God promised. And that should be warming our hearts. You know, the promises of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. We can count on that. Promises like John 14, verses 2 and 3, when Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. We can count on that. Promises like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, when it says, I has not seen, 
ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for us in eternity, we can count on that promise. It's going to blow our minds when we get there one day. Promises like Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. No matter what the circumstances, I'm always going to be there. Promises like Revelation chapter 21 through chapter 22, verse 8, where it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Go read about it. You can count on that. We can count on his promises to us. He can't renounce, rescind, or renege them. They're irrevocable even when I fail, even when I have a lousy attitude, even when we're struggling with difficulty in our life, even when we disappoint the Savior. How often in a week do we do that? Even when we struggle with fear and we struggle with doubt, He can't renounce, rescind, renege on his promises. They are irrevocable. And when we think about that, our hearts glow. That's called grace. It's called grace. Now, the life response to all of this for the Romans and for us is unbridled worship, and it's found in verses 33 to 36. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, the depth of his decisions and the outworking of his plan. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. That word, that second word there is a word that comes from a word that means to track footprints. What it means is this, fully understanding God's plan well, it's as difficult as tracking footprints across the top of the ocean, apart from the revelation that he gives to us. It is totally beyond us. I mean, how does God do this? How does he take the failure and the rejection of Israel and then turn around and offer the world salvation and still keep all of his promises? How does he do that? Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? I like the messages translation of this here. It says this, is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? Nobody like that. And then you have the crescendo, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. From him, he's the originator of all things. Through him, he's the sustainer of all things. To him, he's the focus of all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. That means so be it, right? You know, there is a word in some of the Old Testament Psalms It's called Selah, S-E-L-A-H. And you'll see it occasionally in some of the Psalms. It's a a marker point. Selah means pause, reflect, let it sink in. If you want to look at a Psalm like that, you can look at Psalm 66. Think of Route 66 and you remember Psalm 66. That's almost what what we're at here. It's almost like Selah. Let's pause and reflect and... Let it sink in. Israel has a future. 
and so do we. And it is never because of our goodness. It's all because of him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and prepare to sing our last song together. But as they're coming, I want to read to you a quote that I love so much that I think summarizes a lot of what we've looked at today. Stuart Briscoe is the one who says this, and this is what he says. When eventually we stand in glory, we will no doubt be given a tour of human history and be shown how in one event after another, God was at work. His working in no way violated human freedom or exempted human beings from the consequences of their actions. Nevertheless, God was working to bring things to their predetermined conclusion. To understand this fully will be the greatest possible stimulus to praise and worship. There will be such acknowledgement of his wisdom and knowledge, his mercy and grace, his holiness and justice that all of creation will be needed rightly to express the wonder and glory of his being. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. We thank you that we understand that you have already written the future. And we can at least understand part of it by looking into your word. We thank you, Father, that our promises that we have received from you, you will never renege on, you will never renounce. Your promises are something we can count on, not only now and next week, but for all eternity. And we thank you for that truth, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.